back, guys, to For the Republic. I'm your host, Louis Valentin, as always. Uh, this is going to be another solo episode. Uh, Karendeep's not with us today. Um, he went out to the... This weekend, he flew out to Russia, and he joined the Wagner Group. So uh, he should be back, I think, this week for um, for the for the uh, regular episode. You know, it didn't work out. So obviously, you know, if he's not arrested in Russia, uh, he'll be back this week. Uh, again, another announcement, as we did on the Patreon. I want to thank everybody in Angola. We're number three in news and in, in, uh, politics podcast in Angola. And we're number seven in Uganda for news and politics. I think probably after the discussion we had on the on the gay people, we jumped into number seven. We're going to be hoping to get up to number two very soon. So thank you, all, everyone out there. Uh, now, Kennedy couldn't join us today. He'll be he'll be back. He's, um, you know, he's moving to another apartment. He's moving up in the world. He's uh, becoming a gender gentrified uh, gay gamer. So yeah, he's moving up. Uh, but he'll be back probably uh, by this week. He'll, he'll join us for the, you know, the normal episode where there's two of us. But that doesn't mean we can't you know, have a nice chat because there was some big news. So as you saw this weekend in Russia, um, the leader of the Wagner group, Gennady, um, Gennady, uh, he uh, led his soldiers back into Russia out of Ukraine. And he got, I think, until there are people are saying 120 to 150 miles outside of Moscow, which is if it's like a drive, it's like just say like a two hour drive. It's like between if you're from New York City, it's like the distance between New York City and Albany up north. So that's really the distance where he was apparently from. Now, the U.S. and the West are pretty happy. They're like, wow, that means you'll see the articles everywhere. They're happy. They're elated. They're saying the, the writing's on the wall. The cracks are deepening. You know, the end of the Putin regime is near. They're all saying, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Trump, <laughs> of the Trump lines where they were always saying that, you know, the uh, the walls are closing in every time or that this is worse than Watergate and etc you know that it's almost over and that he'll be uh, gone soon and you know i think it's far-fetched a lot of people you know i don't know what's going on i'm making this episode but no one knows and if anyone tells you that they know what happened you know take that with a grain of salt as i always say be a little you know there's nothing wrong with being a little skeptical you know not cynical just you know skepticism is healthy a healthy dose of skepticism is always recommended in life and so you know Nobody knows. I don't know. But from what we've gathered, you know, this is probably the biggest threat to the Bruton regime that we've seen in public. Now, apparently in private, there have been oligarchs who have, you know, we've seen the oligarchs who attempt to be, you know, independent and do things on their own. They either end up not doing anything at all. Nothing's concrete. Or they're mysteriously jumping off of uh, uh, hospital, uh, out of hospital windows because their rooms are always. And by the way, if you're like, in Russia, and you're an oligarch. Why are you? Why are, please request a room that's at least at the max on like the second floor. Why is everyone on like the sixth, thirteenth floor? Why do you need a room up that high? What you're afraid they're not? What they're gonna tire out to get to you? No, they're gonna get to you. They're gonna push you out that window. But why do people always get like these high, uh, high floors? That's the uh, that's just another thought. But yeah, but again, this is like the biggest threat, and apparently, um. He's out in like uh, there's a deal brokered between I guess him and Putin and Russia and Belarus have brokered apparently, and he's now exiled to to Belarus. Now I don't understand any of this. I don't know what's going to happen. What I would say is that for us here in the West that are cheering on the fact that there was a uh, a coup attempted, which it wasn't even a coup. It's like he just drove two hours outside of well, Moscow and that's it. Like he just all of a sudden got a deal done with the president. And also other people saying that, wow, I didn't expect this. And then there's like all these camps bringing up these different narratives to make themselves look like they're um, uh, clairvoyant, that, oh, we should all see this coming. Now, I am not terribly surprised, but I'm still a little surprised that this happened. I would have never expected it to actually happen, where the leader is actually now driving his forces back into Moscow, into Russia, and is 120, 100 miles away outside of Moscow. That should be shocking to you. But some people are saying that, oh, no, we saw it coming. Like, come on. Now, what I did see coming is him complaining and perhaps doing something even more. I didn't expect this, but I did see him escalating his complaints because it is odd that someone in the elite of Russia, and he was a Russian elite, he was essentially an oligarch that dealt with uh, catering food. So he was, as you all know, he was uh, the personal caterer 
to Putin and the Kremlin. So all the food that was prepared for, you know, Putin and people in the Kremlin and the government was done by this man who was a ex-criminal. I think uh, he was in prison during the, uh, the the fall of the Soviet Union and he be, befriended Putin. And they, you know, once Putin came into power, he was given all this access to the Kremlin and to the government and to all these businesses. And this is how he made his money. And then he started this Wagner group that was an elite uh, group of mercenaries, really mercenaries. There's, I think in the Wagner group today, there are some American soldiers in there who left the country and are now there. And, you know, he has this, you know, group of misfits and a lot of them aren't really trained at this point, well-trained as they used to be. So, you know, he's, this used to be like a mercenary group that would go out to, you know, pretty much do the dirty work in places like Syria and the Middle East and in Africa for the Russian forces, who, by the way, aren't afraid of doing dirty work. So imagine how dirty it is how illegal it must be if Putin's sending this guy to do things he won't tell his soldiers to do. But uh, anyways, you know, this group apparently, I don't know if they're still, you know, with all the uh, casualties that the Russians are taking. And uh, again, all of this is, you know, there's no accurate reporting. We don't know how many people have died, how many people haven't died. Now, the rumor that the numbers I do agree with is that one, you know, one Russian soldier to every six Ukrainians. But that's still a lot of people, apparently. There's still a lot of tolls. And so I remember seeing uh, a couple of weeks ago, This was, I saw this on Channel 4 and the, uh, the British Channel 4. They do the news. It's a left-leaning uh, organization. But still, you know, I just take the continent. I listen to what the people say, not what the analysts say on those news. And I recommend you do that. You know, there was a video of, uh, of him pretty much complaining to the Russian government, to the Russian military, saying, you know, pretty much warning. And, you know, Channel 4 News had the title saying that... Uh, he was advocating that uh, Russian soldiers, you know, that we have ch uh, children, that the military sent children out to fight the Ukrainians. That wasn't what he's saying. He was pretty much warning the Russian elite, the Russian military elite and the Russian uh, political elite, pretty much that, hey, if this continues, you're going to have a situation like 1917, like the 1990s, where people are going to get fed up because they're seeing the casualties. They're the ones coming home and seeing their relatives who passed away, their sons, their cousins, their uncles, their fathers, perhaps, coming back in zinc caskets and being buried while the Russian elite, and he kind of made this funny analogy, but it's really true nowadays when things are all this insane, that the Russians, the Russian elite, their kids, so some oligarch's kid or some general's kids, they're making TikToks and these funny videos of them putting cream on their face and, you know, doing these pranks, but the normal Russian, the average Russian is sending their their sons out to fighting this war that again now he's not saying that there's no point to this war we're saying there's no point to this war they don't believe this but that they're sending their sons out to this war and getting killed because the russian elite is coward cowardly that they're cowards that they're pathetic that they're he would call them whoa we would call we call them whoa we call them fascists it's kind of funny how uh, the world's words are like intertwined and the west doesn't really see that they see this as a great thing but I'll get into that. He pretty much warned them that, hey, you're going to run into a revolution. And that kind of hinting at the fact that he was going to help it happen if they don't fix their act. Now, he's been continuing this type of line of attack, uh, I think uh, just a week ago, two weeks ago. He had an even worse one where he's showing corpses and he was showing the battlefield and pretty much saying, get out here. Uh, he's really going after this uh, minister of the, of the army, uh, Sergei Shogo who pretty much he blames as like being responsible. Now, that man of the general is a big uh, is a close, very close ally to Putin, kind of like th this man was a close ally to Putin. I just don't see, I don't know the dynamics of how that's going to play out. Now, there was a video of the uh, minister of uh, of armed forces going out to the Ukraine. He just flew to the Ukraine for the first time, apparently, in a in a long, long time, and uh, publicly, and pretty much, you know, he took his photo ops, he took his videos of him discussing things with uh, commanders out there in the. Uh, at the bases, pretty much saying, hey, why don't we do this? Look at this, look at that. You know, just, you know, photo off, just to make things look like. Now, that's probably targeted to the Russian people. Again, we don't know anything. This could all just be a, a complete uh, spin. They, they, they might be taking us to the entire world for a complete spin. Now, what I do know is that it failed, obviously. Now, is the reaction on the West is what I want to talk about, because no one knows. I mean, there were people who worked for the BBC uh, there's a fantastic journalist there in the BBC, apparently, uh, who had no idea what was going on. He was stuck in Moscow. He had no idea what was going on on Saturday or Sunday. So that's another thing to be on the lookout for. 
just people trying to pretend. Now, the New York Times has this article uh, published about how they knew that this was happening and that the United States government could have saw this coming and that maybe they had a role. Now, yes, do I think they had a hand played in this war? In, in this war? We know that. Did they have a hand played in this in this uh, this attempted coup? I highly doubt that. Remember, this man is not the this uh, Gennady. Uh, what is Shogovin? Shogovin. Uh, he's not a Western. He's not a Francophile. He's not a fan of the West. He's not in love with America. He doesn't like us. He doesn't. He's fighting the Ukrainians. This is an ultra Russian nationalist. Now Putin is also a Russian nationalist. But this is an ultra-Russian nationalist who is effectively campaigning and he's advocating for total war. He wants more. He wants more soldiers. He wants more weapons. He wants a, a more aggressive battle plan. He wants to see Ukrainians die. He wants to take over this country. He's helping. And he's been probably their most effective force in Ukraine at taking territory. And you saw people in the Ukrainian town where they were positioned pretty much cheering the fact that they were there. They were cheering the Wagner group. So, and that's a scary part for Vladimir Putin. The other section is, you know, why, you know, they're, they're saying that, well, we knew that this was happening, that we knew, we planned it, we knew, oh, uh, we knew this was going to happen. Again, like I just said, we could, we all saw the writing on the wall. There was something going on where, for some reason, this is one of the few, very few, probably the only one in the last 10, 15 years of the oligarchs in Putin's rule where he lets him publicly say all these things about him. We would insult him, saying that he's weak, that he's a coward, that he's a menace, that he's been uh, uh, ran over, that he's been bullied, that he's been convinced. All these negative things for weeks, and nothing's happened to him yet. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to Belarus in exile. Now, can he still command the Wagner group? I don't know. We don't know. More details are coming out as I speak, as we, as we discuss this. But I wouldn't be surprised if the United States had a hand. You know, would I be terribly surprised? This, we know that the United States, the the legislative branch and the institutions of the executive branch surrounding the presidency had a key hand in stoking the flames and not just stoking the flames because those were there, but probably igniting the spark that set the fire for this war uh, many years uh, today to this today. So we know I just don't see that happening here in this situation because this is a this is a Russian nationalist, an ultra nationalist who is intent on taking Ukraine. He does want to invade Ukraine and turn that into into uh, more Russia. You know, aligned with really the end goal of what the Russians want, they're just arguing over the fact that you should be way more aggressive. He's not arguing the fact that we should keep Zelensky there and that we should make a peace deal. He doesn't want that. He wants more war, which the West doesn't realize. And that's why I always say, you know, there's always that old, that old you know, the better, the, the devil you know is the devil is better than the devil you don't. Right? And so, we're cheering that this man is going to get rid of Putin, but I would guarantee you that there's this man would be worse than Putin, and there are people in Russia that are far, far worse than Vladimir Putin, who will do far more worse things. And I think we've been lucky, and you should be blessed and grateful in the West, that we've been dealing with enemies in the West, Russian leaders, despots, dictators, that are not as clever, that are not as savvy as some of these radical ones, and that we haven't dealt with more radical people. Uh, for the most part, in places that have nuclear weapons, we're essentially cheering that there might be chaos, like there was in the 1990s, where was it? It was a complete, it was like an apocalypse that happened in the 1990s in Russia when the Soviet Union fell, and when the, the extreme inflation happened, extreme currency devaluation happened. I mean, you, t you hear the stories where, uh, you know, how bad it was, and the fact that we're cheering for this in a foreign country, we sh really should be ashamed of ourselves in the West, and have all these leaders that are cheering this on cheering the fact that there's going to be Russians killing themselves. And that's what I hate. You can always hate the government. You can always dislike Vladimir Putin, like I do. But you can never actually wish that there be a civil war where common Russian people are killing each other and taking sides. That's just a whole mess. And we've seen what happens when situations and countries devolve into that type of chaos. Nothing good, come, nothing good comes out of it. And things get even worse when you realize that that's a country with more nuclear weapons nuclear missiles than we do in the United States. And nobody wins in that type of situation. And so we, we you know, you know, be careful what you wish for in the West. When we talk about, you know, we want to get rid of Putin. I don't like Putin either, but I would be the first one to admit and even talk to you about the fact that he's probably the the strongest leader and the best leader Russia has right now. I'm not saying in a good way, but 
he's preventing a lot of these more radical people from taking charge. And I think in Russia, we've seen it over, we've seen over and over these changes of power where ordinary Russians seem to be content with the fact that they have a strong leader. And, and you might say, why don't they keep, why do they keep voting for this man? Why do they keep supporting this man? Because the Russian people do support Vladimir Putin. And you saw that. You saw these videos of people pretty much asking the soldiers, like, what is going on? What's happening? Why are you doing this? Why? You know, they do support the Mr. Uh, Vladimir Putin. And that's what we need to recognize is that if you want to win over, the, if you want to change the country, you need to win over the hearts of people who support him first. I always uh, advocate for that. I always uh, advise that. And, and, you know, when you're talking, you know, you want to convince the people, the foundation of the home, you want to convince the people in Russia that vote for this man. And that's the common people there. And so be careful because you get him out and then you create a, 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 you know, a power struggle, a vacuum, and you don't know what's going to happen. And again, this is a country with nuclear weapons, more than we have in the United States. That's a bad situation for us. And we should be attempting to have some order. You don't want to, you know, Mr. Zelensky keeps, you know, bragging about, oh, that's the man in, in the Kremlin who's scared. Well, you know, well, Zelensky's the man who's fleeced the billions of dollars from us, just like that accounting error of $6.2 billion this past week that they gave them. You know, that's a, that's a thief, pretty much. And this man trying to lecture them, you know, be very weary. And so, you know, this is going to bring me to the uh, next, because I, I, you know, no one knows anything. You know, in, in this, you know, incoming week, we'll know more about what happens in Russia, the situation, you know, what could happen, you know, what's the fallout, what will happen to the Wagner group, what effect that will have on Ukraine, what will China's response be, because they're going to see that, hey, this happened and it shouldn't have happened. You know, what do we do now? So I'm going to move on to the fact that uh, there was a clip that about RFK Jr. I think he was on the Megyn Kelly show where he talked about, you know, his plan, foreign policy wise. This is going to be a foreign policy show, guys. And uh, pretty much he outlined something I really want to take into account because this is true when he says that, that we have 800 military bases uh, functioning around the world, primarily in Europe. We have them in Africa. We have them. And I'll try to pull up a map and put it in uh, later. But we do have that. And it's a big question because we're ta we talk about Ukraine and, we're, and I talked last episode about the conflict we have with China and really how horrible this is, you know, how, how bad this is going to be for us and the problems that we're confronted with and why we need a strong president who will carry America with strength and dignity and, and things like that, that will put fear into our enemies and let them know that we're not to be messed with because this is a big problem. Now, do I agree that we need 800 uh, military bases across the world it's a complicated answer I, I i don't like when people think you know it's it's all easy that you know it's all black and white that you can have this easy uh you know there's like a remedy for this that can be done overnight because you know eliminating the cia eliminating the fbi eliminating uh, there are military presence across the world invites a lot of things to happen that we just don't know because we've never seen this before we've never seen a country with 800 military bases with a huge footprint in places like the south pacific the East, uh, the East Asia, like Japan, Korea, the Philippines. We've never seen a huge presence armed by one country that's not even nearby in places like Western and Eastern Europe. We've never seen that. We've never seen a group like NATO. We've never seen these type of alliances. And then a leader come in and say, of that country, the dominant country, the dominant superpower, say, you know what, we're just going to end everything here. We're going to start pulling back. Now, I think he probably has a plan for that, but it's a, it's an intriguing discussion because American conservatives since the rise of Donald Trump have essentially advocated for what the left and media calls us as isolationist, an isolationist policy where we don't want to be involved. RFK argues that we can't afford to be the superpower of the, wor the world's uh, policemen anymore because we have problems at home. I totally agree. I totally agree. Now, can we afford it? I would agree again. We, maybe we can't. We do have to look back, though and fix our situation because we do have a crumbling education system. We have crumbling infrastructure. Just this week, we saw the, we saw the, uh, the bridge collapse on I-95 outside of Philadelphia. We've seen what's happened in East Palestine. I think there was just a crash in, uh, in, in, in the, uh, upper mid, uh, in the upper West, uh, West Pacific where another crash. And so we're seeing our infrastructure that has needed to be rebuilt, but it's being hijacked by the climate agenda. And that's not doing us any good. And I'll discuss our, our discourse because we have a problem with discourse also in this country. Another problem. And we need to fix that. But again, isolationism. Because we talk about Ukraine, a lot of candidates in the Republican Party have been advocating, well, what do we do? What do we do? Well, a lot of them have been saying, well, I'm not going to support any money. Ron DeSantis hasn't made up his mind yet. That, that one day, 
uh, he had the interview, I think, with Piers, where he essentially, or no, not with, well, he had an interview where he said effectively, well, this is a border conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And that's really much what it is. And he's not wrong when he says that. He's not wrong. It is a border conflict. Both countries are attempting to defend their borders. Uh, I, I, you know, the great Victor Davis Hanson would, would, would remind you when you look back into the Second World Wars, you know, a lot of these this, these these mini wars that, you know, aggrandize into the Second World Wars were border wars, were, were, were conflicts over the, the borders of Germany and Austria and the Rhineland, etc. This is a border conflict. Russia is arguing, and through militarily arguing, that the borders, the, the current Ukrainian borders, most of eastern Ukraine is Russian. That Crimea is Russian, that the Donets are Russian, that these are Russian territories. Now, they're going as far as taking the entire damn thing. And in some ways, they're right. For centuries, this was Russian. The problem is that for centuries, lots of Western Ukraine was Polish until the 1940s. And I discussed this on a podcast uh, that we did a, a while back talking about Ukrainian borders, because the point of the war are the borders. It's, no, it's nothing else. It's really the borders. Where do they begin? Where do they end? And if and again, they're going to have to fight that out. I'm not going to talk about that right now. I won't rehash that. We can go back to our episode. I'll put the link down in the description below. Uh, you can, you'll find it where you, you'll you'll be able to see what we talked about, what me and Kenny talked about, the Russian borders, and essentially just outlining it. But what this episode is going to be, what I want to talk about in this discussion is, where do we stand? You know, why should we have this or shouldn't have the isolationists? Because I see candidates keep talking about it, and, I, and I'm not sure if they're really giving a rationale towards it. So, because it is a, it is an important question, and it's not an easy one, like I just said. It's not yes or no. It's not black and white. There's so many factors into it. Because we are the world's greatest superpower. It's something that's never been done. It's something that never, we've never seen in the world. The Romans, they didn't have military bases in, in England, in the England Islands. They didn't have bases in Africa. They didn't have military bases. You know, they had legionnaires, of course, spread out across the established Roman Empire, but they didn't have a Roman base a Roman military base in Korea, in China, in Tibet, in the Safavid Empire, and they, they didn't have that in Persia. They didn't have these uh, these bases like we do, where we have bases in Germany, in Italy, in Japan, South Korea. It's, you know what I mean. And so we're hearing candidates like the only candidate that's actually said something constructive, I think, is when RFK does have a constructive point where he's arguing for a lesser footprint. Uh, physical footprint in the world as their policeman because one we can't afford it or two he also believes that it's not right that we have to be interfering in other countries and dictating what they can if we truly believe in democracy right and it makes sense but then there's donald trump who says we can't be the strongest country in the world we just can't be at we just had we can't do on un these unnecessary wars because in the cost benefit analysis how do they benefit us in the long run you know he would have said well, well if you go to iraq afghanistan at least take the oil if we're going to Ukraine and funneling money, well, at least give us something instead of selling off the rights to you know, J.P. Morgan and these other banks and Goldman Sachs. Why are we doing that? Why don't you just get, why can't we harness, why can't we win something? We're spending billions of dollars giving you all of our weapons and then planning another war with China over Taiwan. Now, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm against China, as you saw in the previous episode. And I believe they're a tremendous menace to the world and global security and global freedom. But we can't just keep funding uh, funding wars and doing this and doing that and interfering if we don't actually have a real concrete position or opinion or understanding of these situations. So what do we do? So Donald Trump has advocated that, yeah, we are going to commit peace in Ukraine. He advocates for 24 hours and, you know, but that's that's an actual solution. It's, well, we're going to end that war and we're then we're going to end the killing and find the solution. The other problem is that, you know, where we found the solution and then we sent, and we know this in the papers, the British uh, covered this quite extensively because it also, because of the fact that the United, there was a peace deal in the early stages of the war when the fighting broke out, where there was going to be a ceasefire. And essentially, both sides had agreed that the Minsk agreement was active. The Russians were going to keep Crimea, uh, were going to keep Crimea, that would be legally Crimea in Russian territory. The Ukrainians would keep their sections of eastern Ukraine, like Donetsk. But they had to agree to greater representative for Russian minorities, Russian-speaking people, who are the majority in that area, but a, a slightly the minority in the total Ukraine, that they had to have a greater voice in the Ukrainian uh, Congress, the Ukrainian parliament, which isn't a, a, a crazy thing. It's trying to reshape them so that they have more uh, representation as a, as a people. 
And the United States essentially nixed that and told Boris Johnson, the prime minister then of the United Kingdom, to go there and tell Zelensky, we will not support any peace deals you make and that we encourage you to end it. And of course, Zelensky, going for the money, of course, because he's taken billions of dollars, effectively told the, the Russians that he was not going to pursue any deals and that he'd see them on the, on the battlefield. Now, again, a bunch of charades have happened after that, but no U.S. Pol- no U.S. president, presidential candidate, outside of Donald Trump, has really given any solutions. So my question is, do we intervene? What do we do? What does the next U.S. president do? Because it's a difficult situation. You could say like Ron DeSantis and say, well, even though he changed his opinion and then said that, you know, that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, he said he's not going to fund. I do believe that if he became president, he's going to send money. I do believe Ron DeSantis, were he to win the election in 2024, he will continue like the neocons do. He will be hijacked by the neocons, which I believe he's very aligned to, and he will send money and weapons to Ukraine. I rarely, I really do think that. I think he'll cave on the basis of policy and dignity and et cetera, and all the adjectives they like to throw out when they like to make things you know, seem like the right decision, even though they know it's not the right decision. He's going to send money. Donald Trump is advocating that he's going to end that war and make them come to an agreement to end the fighting and end the war. Now, that could look like the Minsk agreement. And maybe he'll find a way as the global superpower to coerce them to agree to this agreement. Now, I think I think Vladimir Putin would be okay with that. You know, they, they're both having difficulties in this war. They're both losing tons of soldiers, tons of weapons. They're both tiring out. It's been about two years. They're not, they, they can't keep fighting forever. The question, the problem is I have is that there's a lot of uh, this, this sentiment that why are we doing this? Why are we so intent? And why should, you know, people are getting cheers when they say, I'm not going to get involved in Ukraine because that's their business. The problem is, is that we made it our business. If we look at the history, the true history of what happened is that, like I said before, we ignited a flame that sparked this war. We had people over there. We had people go over there. Remember, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, all these senators go over there and pretty much stoke rebellion. We helped ignite the 2014 revolution that ousted a democratically elected Ukrainian president because he was too aligned with Russia, because he was aligned with Eastern Ukraine, which speaks Russian. They speak Russian. They're Russian Orthodox. They are aligned because for centuries, again, for centuries, these people were Russian. It's not as easy to understand that, well, the Ukrainian, why do they like Russia? Because they have families in Russia. If you're if you're in Donetsk and you're, you know, just a, a couple hundred kilometer, kilometers from Russia, and you've lived in this area for centuries, your family's lived there for decades and centuries, there are generations that speak that are Ukrainian and Russian. If you speak and actually meet people from that area in Russia, in, in Ukraine, you'll see that this is the case, that they're very interlinked, and that there's a big, big, uh, connection that they have. It's very difficult for someone to just come out from the West and say it's, you know, it's it's A and it's B, that it's, you know, white, black and white and that you should be opposed if you're Ukrainian. It's very difficult, very difficult because of what I just said, this connection. And so when we're doing this and we're, we're actively since the 90s, the Clintons, you know, you know, we're inheriting this mess of interventionism. It's very difficult for us to just step out and let them fight it. And you would say, well, why? Why Why should we care? Well, because we do have some responsibility. And if we're in the, well, and, and, and all these countries in the East, they see this. They know this. We're choosing to ignore it and to censor people who talk about this. That's what we're doing in the West. You know, when Peter Hitchens comes out and he outlines what many other authors and, and journalists in, the, in Eastern Europe have been telling the West, hey, the Americans, the British, NATO, they're doing this, and the people here in Russia feel threatened. And the people in Ukraine are forecoming, you know, can see a forecoming war, a conflict, a military conflict. What did we do? Oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. Vladimir Putin's he's he's at fault because he's the one who's gonna do it. And he did, but he did it because we were threatening, and now we're letting more people enter NATO. And and the hypocrisy that there is, for example, you know, Germany and Germany, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, soon where do we what do we do because that's really the main question what do we do and so i really propose that we i really like the approach of ending this war because the united states and it's very crucial that we that we be the ones to broker a peace i'm not sure if the biden administration is going to broker a peace they might want to do that they might and this is just me thinking here they could potentially broker a peace before the 2024 election if they see their chances are getting desperate if they see that Donald Trump has continued to gain steam despite the indictments, if he's still not in jail by the time that 
the uh, that the actual general election comes and that if they see that he's getting traction, despite being a chip, because they might put him in jail and say, well, how the hell is he getting traction? They might, regardless of anything, broker a peace if they feel that it's politically convenient. Because the Democrats in this country do things for political expediency, for political gain. They don't do things if it's right, you know, principally, or if it's good for their idea, for their underlying constituency. They don't do that. They do things if it's politically convenient. They give out DACA to come, to make sure the Hispanics feel happy and that their children that are legally here keep voting for them. That it keeps things tribal. That's why they do these 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 type of things. So I can't foresee that happening. But it is crucial that the United States broker the peace geopolitically. We can't keep affording to run away from these problems and saying, you guys deal with you guys deal with it. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Because that's what it sounds like at, at, at this point. Some of these Republicans that say that are on the more populist side, of course, they want to differ Donald Trump by saying, well, I'm more I'm more isolationist and we have nothing to do with it. We do have something to do with it. We have a big time thing to do with it because those world, the countries out there are not going to let us get away with the hook and say, well, that wasn't my administration. They're going to say, well, you're the president now. You have to deal with it because we've been dealing with you in various administrations for several decades coming out and doing these and intervening. That's what's been happening. And so we can't just sit here and run away. I do propose we we uh, broker peace. And I think the Minsk agreement in 2014 is the per, or 2015 is the greater. They both both sides agree to it. The Obama administration and the West were the ones that uh, that nuked it. This was, you know, the French. The Germans, they all agreed. They thought this was a good deal. This is more of a European problem. We could have let them handle that. And the United States uh, brokered and, 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 again, broker peace. And, yes, we were friendly with Russia. And there was no big There's no big deal with that. Remember, this is a nuclear country. This is the former number two superpower in the world that still is up there in the top five global superpowers in terms of influence. They have grand influence, great influence in the regions that we need to be more involved in positively, like Africa, like East Asia in the middle east huge influence and we need to we need to we need to you know parallel that on our own and provide the same type of, uh, of, of presence that's why peace deal is very important because china is, is circling is, 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 is uh, circling around the water they see us weakened and they're going to try to jump on a peace deal that they can go out and then promote to the world and the left the liberals are going to love that when they hear things like hey you know, we, we're the ones, we're the country of peace. The Americans are decadent. They're weak, and they're all about warmongering. Look at what they did in Ukraine. Look at what they did in China. Look what, they did in, what they're doing in Taiwan. Look at what they did in Libya. Look at what they did in Iraq. Look at how they handled Afghanistan. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to do. Because it's an easy narrative. That's what they do. They're sly, they're clever, they're smart, and that's what they do. They're going to do something positive, even though it's going to be to their, de- their benefit. And they're looking. They're going to go to Ukraine, and they're going to harvest... And they're going to make the Ukrainians a colony slave, a slave colony, just like they do in Africa, where they go to the Congo, in Zimbabwe, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Chad, all these countries, and, and, and pretty much turn them into colonies. You know, that they're, those aren't countries anymore. They're colonies, and they're at the, they work at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party and the king. That's why we need to have a concrete policy. We can't just sit here and complain about, why are we involved? Why are we involved? We'll find a way out. And I advocate, we broker a peace. Where yes, Ukraine and Russians, and you might say, well, why do the Russians want that? Well, if they're not, if they're seeing that there's a threat at home, if they're seeing there's a threat at home, Vladimir Putin potentially being kicked out, and they're seeing that they can capitalize and officially gain territories and have some influence over the Russians, where they see us retreat in NATO, and I do advocate we do retreat, and we don't allow Ukraine into NATO, like Mr. Biden, like Mr. Biden, the way the, the Europeans want. I do suggest that. And we allow them to sort of handle their own region, because that is their own region. We don't have any business being involved in Turkmenistan. What we do have to maintain is a positive image. That's what I advocate. Not involved in their politics, but maintain a positive influence. Like, and that will, in doing that, we'll do so. Export our values of freedom and, 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 and individual responsibility in, in, in Republican democracy and constitutional republics. That works. That works. Not our pop culture of the LGBTQ, the Black Lives Matters, like they did in Afghanistan, where a socially conservative country was forced to advocate these these false these false ideals and these false martyrs and these and these false gods and these false hopes. Because they see that in the East and say, look at that. They're gonna they're making your children gay and trans and, and feminine. They're making your men into women. They're making your children trans. They're stealing you of dignity. 
and look at them. They worship George Floyd and the rest of them. Criminals. Criminals. Criminals are drug addicts. We don't do that. China doesn't do that. China does not do that. Russia does not do that. We need to do that. That that should be our policy foreign-wise. And yes, and then we can consider, and I do advocate, because we do have a problem where we we kind of, I think, after the Cold War, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, after the Cold War, I think we made a huge mistake where we attempted to chant victory, but victory over what and over who? Because what happened? The Soviet Union collapsed and there was no longer a Soviet Communist Party. That ended. There's a Communist Party in Russia that sort of that sort of inherited that system, but they're not in power. They're kind of allied to, to, to Putin. But we defeated the Soviet Union and we thought that we won. But we forgot something very important. The reason we hated and we fought against the Soviet Union because this was a clash of civilizational ideologies, a clash of civilization. There was a communist, uh, centralized, uh, totalitarian civilization where the government planned everything out. It planned out the economy. It planned out family life. It planned out society. It planned out education, political structure. In, in the West, primarily America, you had a capitalistic society where there were different, where you, and you saw this big difference in the supermarkets, where it's really the biggest place, it's, it's the biggest arena for choice. Right. There was first when you go shopping, you don't have to buy just a blue shirt and a pink hat. You can buy multiple shirts of multiple colors and in multiple brands. You can buy shorts, you can buy shoes, you can buy in multiple colors and multiple brands that are made by competing companies. There's not just one tomato. There's multiple tomatoes from different places. There's not just one ketchup brand. There's multiple. There's not just one steak. There's multiple. There's a there's a bountiful because of competition. That's free market economics. It was hijacked again by the neoconservatives who then sent all those jobs overseas. But for the most part, we were fighting communism, Marxism. We failed to realize that Marxism had spread out even to our hemisphere in South America, where today there are communist uh, leaning and favorable governments in Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, uh, Ecuador's having a, a tough time. The president of Brazil is a proud socialist now, but he wasn't before, but now he is. He aligns himself with China. The president of Argentina is a socialist. The president of Mexico, just on our doorstep, just outside of our door in the south, is a proud socialist. A closeted communist, but a entirely proud socialist. The specter of communism has grown and its shadow is right behind us. It's shadowing us. And we have to be very fearful of that. And we forgot, we failed to realize that instead of fighting the Soviet Union, where NATO did over the next 30 years and igniting this conflict that we see today in Ukraine, we fought the wrong enemy. We forgot to realize that it was communist. And so we still have this massive apparatus for the Cold War. And our military is so stretched out that it's fighting this very, it, it doesn't really know what it's doing. And I have, we know, and I know several people that have uh, enlisted in the army primarily, and they're sent out to Europe, where they're based in Germany or Italy and Spain. And and I see that the military operates in this, this this aimless way. We don't have a war, but we're we're sending these soldiers out to get prepared. But I see them working in these fields like human resources. And do we really need a base? Do we really need to have a base that's costing us billions of dollars every year? That's protecting the Germans from who? Well, they claim the Germans claim it's the Russians, but then they go out even though we don't have conflict with Russia and we want to be friendly with Russia, we're positioning all these missiles at Russia still from afar, like as if this were the Cold War, when Russia has renounced its communism, apparently, officially, of course. Now, Putin is a probably a sycophant of, of Stalin and of the communist Soviet Union. He probably is a closeted socialist. He's very friendly with, the, with his allies in Cuba and Venezuela and all these other communist satellites that they used to have. Still very friendly. China, very good friends with China, although they do have their differences. And I'll talk about that in a future episode. And I talked about that previously too. But we're shooting these pointing. We're 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 really still instigating this conflict that has ended, right? With Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, and so we have bases in Germany and Italy. And my question is, why? Why are they there? What is going on there? And what are they doing? Do we need people? And I know someone who works there. You know, they they work in human resources. And I said, well. Do you really need the army to have a human resource officer and in, in a whole base filled with human resource officers in Germany? Do they need to be there? 
can't we just have them in North, South Carolina? Can we use the funds that we used to actually f fix the situation in Fort Hood, in Texas, where that base constantly has problems with rape and kidnapping and suicide, and, and, and there's a huge demoralization in the military. Can't we use those funds to help these poor men and women that valiant, valiantly sign up to commit their lives to protecting this country and the people here? No. The military doesn't think that way. They're saying that we need to have, we still need to have this huge footprint. Do we need to have a military base with nuclear weapons being sent off to, uh, to, to Turkey? Who's a bigger friend to Putin than they are to the United States and like to play both cards? Do we need that? Does that have to happen? Personally, I don't think so. Maybe we can reform, like RFK Jr. says. And that can be a, 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 a talking point or a policy discussion, a debate that Republicans authentically need to have. Because we're afraid of hearing the words, cutting the military. No, I believe in reforming the military. America is great because we can reform without having to start all over again. right? Some countries, you know, I, I had a professor in college uh, who told me, you know, the United States is just so backwards. It only has one constitution. You know, the British, the French have had several. The Italians have had several. The Germans have had several constitutions. They, they're modern. But I think to myself, when did these French constitutions happen? Oh, wait. When they had a revolution, they killed a bunch of people, got rid of the monarchy. The Napoleon came in. They had an empire. They had a new constitution. They got rid of the empire. They had a new constitution. They have this other republic. The Bourbons come back. They have a new constitution. There's, 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 we're what, in the 5th, 6th, 7th Republic of France? Kind of like Star Wars at this point. They have all these constitutions. Of course they do. Because they keep having these tumultuous changes and they can't have a normal change. They can't reform their government without having this huge change, this huge issue. And of course they were invaded by the, by the Germans twice. That second time, of course, avoidable, as, we, uh, as, I, as, as I've learned from the great Victor Davis Hanson. You know, these were avoidable conflicts. But my point is that, again, again, uh, we can go back in reform without having to blow everything up and start over again. And so we can reform uh, without, we can reform the military without retreating everything back at once, without slashing everything and saying, oh, we're going to shut down everything now. We can reform. We can reform the FBI. We can reform the CIA without shutting it down. I'm not advocating it again, but if can't we think about it? Can't we debate this policy? Perhaps moving the FBI out of Washington and not letting them have that new multi-billion dollar headquarters, maybe moving them out to Oklahoma or Kansas or Iowa would be a good thing, where they can uh, be away from the stench and the toxicity of what I claim is the most horrible city in, in, in the country, Washington, D.C. Maybe we can get them out of that toxic political climate and depoliticize the FBI. Maybe we can do the same thing to the CIA and the NSA, keep them outside of Washington and hire people from outside of Washington ordinary americans ordinary americans who will do a better job at actually serving and fulfilling the purposes of these institutions originally and perhaps maybe lo lowering their their role in our institutions and not letting them be get bigger can't we reform can republicans and conservatives be a uh, lose their fear for the word reform and can we do that to the military where we stop sending Billions of dollars to protect countries that obviously don't appreciate us. There were Gallup polls during the Obama administration where the Germans did not like us. They did not view us favorably. Yet we spent billions of dollars over decades defending them. We have military bases. And then they had this whole idea. They thought it was clever for them to have a Nord Stream pipeline with the Russians, who they said we have to defend them against and bring our own soldiers, sacrifice our own children, sacrifice our own brothers and sisters, and spend the money shipping the weapons, shipping the artillery, shipping the, and training German soldiers, training NATO and organizing them and putting all this money in to defend a country that was making backroom deals with the country we were supposed to defend them with, while they also don't like us. Imagine. It's like paying your ex or something. It's like, it's stupid. And that's why I can't make up a good analogy because the whole situation we're in is dumb. But that's what we should do. And we should look at that. And, I, and yeah, it, it should be an individual. We should look at each country and each region and say, well, should we really be this involved? Maybe we can lessen our involvement. Because getting rid of the CIA and the FBI like day one is a huge problem. A huge problem. We're going to lose hundreds of people. Because remember, there are CIA operatives and FBI operatives across the CIA operatives across the world in intelligence. And if they lose, and if we just get rid of the CIA, they're going to lose 
We're going to lose. We might be assassinated. We might be kidnapped. We're going to be... They might sell our, our intelligence to these foreign uh, our foreign adversaries. You know, there's a, a lot of things we have to have take into account. And the problem is I hear from these politicians, Democrats, they're a lost part. They're a lost cause. RFK is trying to save them. I don't even talk about them because I know the corrupt, uh, vile monsters they are. We've seen it. But the Republicans need, because we have to act smarter, I mean, the public expects that out of us. They can't. We can't have two stupid parties. We can only have the Democrats. They're the stupid ones. We, the Republicans need to come out, act up, and really debate what are we going to do and not waste time. That's really what you have to do. There, there is a possibility for a bright future. There is a, there is a reason to hold out hope that things can get better if we think these things out instead of being like most Republicans outside of Donald Trump and just flip-flop or say, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved. That's not our business. That's not our business. You know, we're here. I advocate the same. Play the cards you're dealt. We were dealt these cards. we got to play them. We can't wish we were like China or like Australia or Canada that, that's, that doesn't get involved. We can't do that. We're the United States of America. We have to advocate for this. And we have to think this through and see. Yeah, maybe we can. And we can slowly retreat as America's policemen if we figure out that that's not what we want to do. Because, again, we do have to invest in ourselves. RFK is right. And Donald Trump tried to do this. But Republicans, the neocons and the corporates, Ron DeSantis at times too, by the way, hijacked it and didn't let him build the wall and focus on immigration. And despite their resistance, he got him uh, illegal border crossings to all-time lows. And he built new wall. And he fixed existing wall. Hundreds of miles. So we need to organize and we need to act fast because remember, we do have China on the step. And I talked about that last time. They are a threat. They want to crush us. They're doing things like, like again, they're still cheating us on trade, uh, sending fentanyl over our border, sending spies as students in our institutions, illegally funding our, our research institutions and essentially buying them off when they should be loyal and patriotic like most people, like most people. Instead, we've let Silicon Valley go woke and, and pretty much betray us for China. That's what they've done. And so we need to really figure it out if you want to continue. And if we do, we have to have a debate. True policy-wise debate as to what we're going to do. Because, you know, we focus on all these wrong issues. And you know, that's sometimes what bothers me about conservatives. We're, we're resembling a lot. The Byzantine Empire fell in the end a lot because... They focused instead of focusing on the army of the income of the upcoming and uprising army of the Ottomans in the in the east that were coming towards them and wanted to expand uh, Muslim dominance, the Ottoman Empire, and they they got to Vienna. They got to, they lost in Vienna, of course, uh, thankfully because when Europe finally woke up, and but the Byzantines because of this arrogance that they thought that they were better and that the Ottomans oh the Ottomans won't do that kind of like now where we sit here and think oh the Chinese won't do that. We're the United States. How? Why would they do that to us? We've been so kind to them. We can just buy them off. We can give them things. See the parallels? It's not working. They don't like us, and they'd like to get rid of us. You know, they spent their time debating these. You know, debating religious themes. Uh, they spent their times debating salaries, and you know, they became uh, lethargic and, and uninnovative. And they thought that because of their prestige, because they had outlived the Western Empire. Western Roman Empire that they could that they could live on a reputation and even if the world didn't like them they would still be respected that runs out when a power emerges and says and sees their generosity and their and their wealth and their um, and their uh, their prosperity when they see them as toxic and lazy and decrepit and decadent is the word and the Ottomans saw them eventually as a weaker power they said that well we can take them on and we're going to invade them and, and, and and the problem is that when that happens, a lot of times you come to this point where Byzantine Byzantines don't exist anymore. There aren't any Byzantines. There are Greeks, sure, but there is there's no Byzantine Empire. There's no Byzantine Republic. There's no Byzantine, you know, Heritage Month. There's nothing about them. They they're gone. They vanished. It's over. And we're under the threat of that if we don't organize ourselves and if we focus on the real threats. Like, should we be the America's policeman? What do we do if we want to be that? How do we increase and promote core values of the United States, constitutional Republican, Republican government, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, voluntary military uh, uh, participation, individual responsibility, community, an agricultural value in the agricultural lifestyle, 
things like that that may have founded this country and made us distinct. And that's what's going to help our, uh, as I say, our mark, market us better on the world stage, the countries in Africa and East Asia, like I said, that view us as these odd, they view us at what, they say, they see us at what goes wrong when we become too affluent. That's really it. That's really it. And so they view us that. And the Chinese and the Russians use the, what we do. Remember, like the, the painting murals of George Floyd in, in Afghanistan and the gay flags and, and funding uh, women's gender studies and LGBTQ Wi-Fi code stuff at the, at the University of Kabul. They see that and they say, look at what they're doing to you. They're demonic. They're anti-civilization. Look at them. They're backwards. They're disgusting. And they use that against us. And we need to market ourselves better if you want to continue to be the top dog in the world who's not hated. We don't want to be hated. We want to be respected and a little feared so that uprising countries like North Korea, Iran say, you know what? We should think twice if you want to take them on and attack them. We should think twice. Instead of debating and focusing on things like Dylan Mulvaney, who's a waste of time and the the, and the Leah Thomas thing and the, and the and Hunter Biden's important, of course, and the Donald Trump stuff is important, but instead of these scandals like like Jeffrey Tubin and, and and all these other things that you see nowadays in the ocean spray submarine and and the topics of should we care about the billionaires and what about uh, Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg these things that waste our time that waste our time when we're losing time to focus on these big issues because I really do believe that if we did these things we can go back to the levels of 2019 2018 under Donald Trump or back to the 80s and 90s when the world looked at us with reverence and awe where Russians positively viewed the united states well where they said we like you guys we want to be like you guys we want to be a democracy in the 1990s russians after the crisis they viewed us they viewed us positively they said we want to be a, a democracy and instead we wasted that and turned them we turned russia into vladimir putin's personal country we led to him being on top and so we we, we there is a there is a pathway if we truly focus and and I don't want to end things on a, that's why I don't want to end things on a negative note. But um, in the meantime, until next time, uh, again, you know, sign up, you know, like, subscribe, tell your friends, sign up for our Patreon. The link is patreon.com for the number for the uh for the Republic. Uh, you'll find more content. We just did a new episode. Uh, you know, we talked about several topics. I really suggest you sign up. Tell your friends. It's just five dollars a month, and it goes a long way to be keeping us independent unbought by corporations it'll make us top three just it's not going to make us top three in angola we're going to be number one in angola and so it'll really go a long way if you want to hear more of our uh, more of our content you can find us there uh again thank you all our audio only listeners on spotify apple samsung podcasts uh tune in apple all over the place really appreciate you guys again like follow us give us five stars uh we really appreciate your support and me and candy will see you guys next time thanks for watching thanks for listening